thought it was going to start again. Amen. Yeah, my version. <laughs> I think we'll just stick with the one we just got. Amen. Daniel chapter 7. I'll invite you to open your copy of God's Word with me if you uh, can and are able to do that. We're not going to read through the text in the beginning of our uh, study together here today because this is actually what it is, a study where we come together and really just put our hearts to what God wants to say to us from Daniel 7. Steve's going to put the outline up for you, and we're going to be talking about portraits of prophecy from Daniel chapter 7. Well, to this point in our study of the book of Daniel, we've surveyed much of the history of Daniel's 70 years in Babylonian captivity. You'll remember from the earlier chapters how he came to Babylon as an exile from Judah, just a teenage boy when he was brought there and now he's well into his 80s and he's been there a long time so beginning in chapter 7 we notice there's a shift the first six chapters speak to us about the history of Daniel's captivity and now there's a shift from history to prophecy some of the prophecy that we will read here in chapter 7 has been revealed in times past while there is still quite a bit yet to be revealed in the future. Daniel chapter 7 has been referred to by some great scholars, one being Dr. John Walvoord, who said that the 7th chapter of Daniel is the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. This chapter has also been called the very heart of the book of Daniel. This, uh, this chapter, chapter 7, is also a connecting chapter. It's one that overlays and it ties Daniel 1 through 6 to Daniel 7 through 12. It's very important because beginning in Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, and ending at the end of chapter 7, verse 28, the book was written in a different language. It was written in Aramaic. Before chapter 2, verse 4, and beginning in chapter 8, the rest of the book was written in Hebrew. But this specific passage was written in Aramaic. Now, it's significant because the Aramaic section began with Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, and it ends with a parallel vision is given to Daniel in chapter 7. So in chapter 7 through 12, we'll study a series of events that are very important to understanding God's plans for the last days. I read this this week, and I believe it's really good that'll help us. Well, one scholar said this. He said, from chapter 7 on, the book is very different than the previous chapters. It doesn't continue with a chronology of events, but it rather reverts back into a time of series of visions that Daniel had. It's not history, it's prophecy. In a sense, the first half of the book gives the credentials of the prophet and the reliability of the messenger. The second half gives the message. Now, the message of Daniel chapter 7 through 12 is not really new, it is a message that God is sovereign. And I'm grateful to say that today, and I'm grateful to know that to be true. You see, the entire book of Daniel emphasizes the sovereignty of God 
over all his creation. So as we begin to look at chapter 7, we're going to notice that the writing is not in chronological order anymore. Daniel begins by writing about the events that took place in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. So keep in mind a few things as we begin to talk about chapter 7. Keep in mind that Daniel's vision of chapter 7 occurs 14 years before the feast of Daniel 5 of Belshazzar. These events that we will read in chapters 7 and 8, they occur at the end of chapter 4 and before the beginning of chapter 5 if you're going in chronological order. Daniel's about to illustrate three scenes for us, and I want to talk to you about those scenes. But before we go any further, I want to ask God to help you and to help me today, to help me be able to articulate faithfully what God has taught me in the study, and that he would help you and I both to understand his plan for us and for this world, and that we'd never forget how sovereign he is over all creation. Pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, as we dive into Daniel 7, you give us a heart to hear, you give us a heart to obey, and give us a heart to trust you today. Thank you for the truth of the word. Thank you that we can count on it to be true. In a world where we don't know what to believe sometimes, it's comforting to know that we can believe in the 100% reliability of the word of God we pray it in Jesus name amen and amen as I said today I want to point out three scenes from chapter 7 that help us kind of get a grasp on the prophecy that has been fulfilled in times past and also get an eye toward what is yet to be revealed Daniel begins while giving us a portrait or a picture if you will of tragedy we can read about that in verses 1 through 7, and it is also recounted again in verses 15, 16, and 17. As we look into these verses, we see that Daniel begins to have a vision. The vision begins with a scene that is filled with wind and waves. That's very significant. The restless sea has always been a biblical image of the conditions of the nations of the world. The storminess of the sea reveals and resembles the nations of the world living in confusion in a constant state of war. But just as the waves and the wind and the currents are unpredictable, the actions and the, of the nations of the world are also difficult to foresee. You see, Daniel sees four great beasts coming up out of the sea, each different from the other in verse 3. Each of these beasts would represent an earthly kingdom that would have great power upon the earth. In order to fully understand these kingdoms that are symbolized by these beasts, we must understand this passage in its proper context. The vision of Daniel in chapter 7 parallels the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. You'll remember in that dream that Nebuchadnezzar he went to, to Daniel, and Daniel revealed that four nations were represented by the materials that composed this great statue that he saw in his dream. Now Daniel sees four beasts, which also represent the kingdoms of the earth. Well, let's walk through each of these 
uh, briefly this morning. The first one that he saw was a lion with eagle's wings in verse 4. You see, the first beast was a vision of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. The lion was the king of the beast, and the wings were a symbol of its ability to conquer quickly. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel compare Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to a lion and an eagle. But there's something that the Bible says about this particular uh, lion, and that is that its wings were plucked off. These words are in reference to the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar that took place in chapter 4, verses 28 through 33, if you'll remember from our earlier study. Nebuchadnezzar had spent his career conquering kingdoms and territories. And the reference to the eagle's wings being plucked off reveals a change in the very heart of Nebuchadnezzar. He went from having an insatiable appetite for war and destruction of others to having an appetite more of domestic issues. John Phillips said the savage rage of a wild beast was replaced with the heart of a mortal man. What a change did take place in Nebuchadnezzar's heart and life. But the phrases lifted up and a man's heart given to it, also in verse 4, or what is called the divine passive, which indicates that this activity came from God and God alone. God is the implied agent of the activity, and even when Nebuchadnezzar was living for himself, God was active around him and ultimately humbled him, a lion with eagle's wings. But there was a second beast that he saw, and that was one of a bear. Now, this beast represents the kingdom that would follow Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar when they were overtaken by the Medes and the Persians there at the end of chapter 5. See, it was this particular beast was raised on one side, which depicted the greater strength of the Persians over the Medes. See, the Persians actually defeated the Medes and absorbed them into their empire. And you'll notice as we go through the study when each kingdom overtook the other, the people and part of the culture was absorbed into that empire. So when that took place, this powerful kingdom became responsible for, according to the scripture, devouring much flesh. Now, it's also interesting to note that this bear had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, which has raised a little bit of difference of opinion among some scholars. Some say that it's just an illustration of the savage nature of the bear, but others, and I believe could be more accurately interpreted, that it's an illustration of the nations of Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon who were conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. See, this empire moved upon their enemies with calculated, overwhelming force, and they did so in order to crush any resistance that they might encounter. A bear, but there was a third beast, and that was the leopard. See, this beast represented the next empire, which was the Greek Empire under the command of Alexander the Great. You will not remember him from world history. You will remember him, I hope, from biblical history. But like a leopard, Alexander was quickly conquering all the known world of his day. 
His unprecedented conquest would come to an abrupt end at the height of his success when he died at the age of 33. John Phillips says his astounding victories, although they brought him lasting fame, it did not bring him lasting fortune. See, when Alexander the Great died, he left no successor. And the four heads of verse 6 are representative of the four kingdoms that came as a result of the division of the Greek Empire at his death. And then there was the fourth beast, which was a dreadful and terrible beast. See, this fourth beast is representative of the Roman Empire. Daniel said that this empire would be dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong in verse 7. You'll remember from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 that the Roman Empire was symbolized by iron legs. It took up half the length of the statue of the image, and this iron depicted the great strength that the Roman Empire would possess. The long legs were represented their longevity, which was longer than any of the other empires. Now keep this in mind. Babylon lasted barely 70 years. The Persian Empire, the Medo-Persians, lasted about 200 years. The Greeks lasted somewhere in the neighborhood of 180 years. But the Roman Empire lasted 500 years. You see, the opening verses of Daniel 7 are filled with tragedy and destruction, and references made again to these four beasts in verses 15, 16, and 17 as Daniel again confirms that these beasts of the earth are future to him, but we understand from Scripture and from the study of world history that this prophecy of these nations has already come to pass. There was great tragedy. But there's a second picture that Daniel gives us beginning in verse 8, and also it's noted there on your outline. There's reference in verse 11, 19 through 21, and 23 through 25. There's also a picture of tribulation. A tragedy is one thing. Tribulation is quite another. You see, all four of these kingdoms described by Daniel are now a part of history and not prophecies we've said. However, this fourth kingdom, uh, the Roman Empire, was far different than all the others. This kingdom is a kingdom that will be revived in the last days and it will actively oppose God and his people. So as we look at the proceeding words, the words that are about to follow, these words of prophecy, this will be a great place for me to remind you of a couple of things when it comes to studying Bible prophecy. Two things. I learned this from a friend of mine, and it's very true. As a student of Scripture and a student of Bible prophecy, you should never be afraid to study Bible prophecy, but you should also never be obsessed with Bible prophecy because there's a great danger in being so obsessed with Bible prophecy that you fail to take part in the Great Commission which involves taking the gospel to every creature which involves sharing the gospel with your neighbor and the nations and if we get so caught up in the events and facts of prophecy that we quit sharing the gospel then we become obsessed with something that we should not be no, you shouldn't be afraid as a Christian, but you should not be obsessed. It is a tragedy when people get so obsessed with obtaining knowledge 
that they fail to put to use the knowledge that God has given them. So do we really know everything about future events? Well, the answer is no, we don't know everything. But I do know this, God does, because he's sovereign. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophet said in the 46th chapter in the 9th and 10th verse, he said this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. And there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God made it very clear that we may not know everything, but he does. So in verse 8, look there with me if you will. We notice that there is something very interesting about this fourth beast and its ten horns. There is a little statement that is tagged to the end there in verse 8 that says, There was another little horn. Well, that's very important because that little horn, if you'll notice what the scripture says about them, is that this little horn was um, certainly something else. He said that this little horn were, were the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Well, this little horn we need to look at for a little bit this morning because I believe it's important not just understanding Bible prophecy, but understanding who this horn is and what his mission is. Notice with me, first of all, the identity of this little horn. See, the little horn in verse 8 represents a person. It represents the Antichrist, a real person who will rise upon the scene as a leader of a one-world government that will be present upon the earth during the days of great tribulation. Revelation chapter 13 is a good place, and if you're there and you want to just take a piece of paper or something and stick on Revelation 13, it's a good place to reference because we'll refer to several things from that chapter as we talk about the Antichrist. Revelation 13, 1 says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. Paul talked about him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, when he said to the church, he said, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, speaking of the day of the Lord, will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself to be God. Uh, Paul had a, uh, had a foreshadow of who this man was to come. John the Revelator sees it very clearly in Revelation 13, and he gives us the identity of this little horn, the Antichrist. Well, knowing his identity is one thing, but we need to know something about his influence. Revelation 13, 2 says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, speak, that's a reference to Satan, gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. Wow. See, this verse sounds a whole lot like the prophecy of Daniel 7 because we must remember 
that when each kingdom was taken by, the, by another, as I just told you earlier, the people of that fallen kingdom would integrate into the network of this new kingdom. They would bring with them some of their customs and ways, but they would have to submit to the authority of the one who had overtaken them. I like what Adrian Rogers said when he said this. He said, when the Antichrist comes, he will come with the lineage of the empires. He will have the royalty of Babylon, the strength of the Medo-Persian, the sophisticated wisdom of Greece. He will be a combination of Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Caesar, Charlemagne, Hitler, and many more. You, you see, another key to understanding his influence is found right there in Revelation 13 again. Notice verses 3 and 4. He said, And I saw one of his heads as if it, were, if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? You see, when the Bible begins to describe the Antichrist as the beast, the scriptures are not describing his appearance. No, 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 they are, they are describing his character. You see, he will be a very appealing person. He will be appealing in the eyes of the world. He'll probably be a rather handsome, charming, clever, and intelligent person. But somewhere in the midst of his reign, according to Revelation 13, as I just read, he will suffer a fatal head wound. And as the world mourns his death, he will miraculously be brought back to life through a counterfeit resurrection. Satan, you know how he does things. He can't come up with nothing on his own because he's a created being himself. But he works to imitate everything God originates. He is the ultimate phony, and he will use false signs. He will use false wonders. He will do anything to deceive the world into believing his lies. That's the identity of the Antichrist. It's important we understand that. That's the influence of the Antichrist, and more he will have quite an influence during the Great Tribulation. But there's also the intentions of, of the Antichrist. You'll find that in verses 21 and verse 25. You see, it's abundantly clear from the Scripture that the Antichrist has an agenda of bringing pain, suffering, and persecution to the world. Notice verse 21, if you will. He said, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Then notice verse 25 says he shall speak pompous words against the most high and he shall intend to change times and law and then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time very important you see during the time of his reign verse 25 speaks of his intentions to change times and law he will do so especially during the last half of the seven-year tribulation reign, the three and a half years at the end, 42 months, 1,260 days, which we call the Great Tribulation. You see, at some point in the future, and I don't know if you watch much on the news about peace treaties and things going on with Israel and, 
and the United Arab Emirates and things like that, I'd pay close attention to that. But sometime in history, there will be a peace treaty that will be signed. And this person, I believe, will be very instrumental in bringing that about, whoever he is. Is he alive today? I don't know. Probably so. have no, no confirmation of that. But I, I do know this, that when the peace treaty is signed, there will be a seven-year peace treaty signed. And in the middle of that peace treaty, he's going to break it. And that's when the last 42 months, the time of great tribulation will come upon the world and he will really spread evil like never before. Notice, if you will, where I said we're in verse 4 of Revelation 13. We can walk through a few verses in the 13th chapter there and we can find some important things to know about the Antichrist. I'll tell you, I borrowed these next few things that I'll share with you from Dr. Adrian Rogers' book, Unveiling the End Times in Our Times. This book was published in 2004, one year before Dr. Rogers went home to be with the Lord. It's amazing how applicable it is just 16 years later. Here's some observations that he gives that I want to share with you. They're not original, but they are helpful. They help me, and I trust they'll help you. What do we find about the Antichrist? Well, the first thing we see here is that he's coming to deify Satan. He wants to make a God out of Satan in verse 4. See, just as God the Father receives worship through the Son, the devil will receive worship through the Antichrist in verse 4. He's not only coming to deify Satan, but he's coming to defy the Savior. Notice verse 5 of Revelation 13. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months, as I just told you. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. I like what Dr. Rogers said. He said, like filthy lava, blasphemy will flow from his mouth as he twists everything good, pure, and holy. With burning eloquence, he will turn people away from Jesus Christ to himself. And the ultimate blasphemy will occur when he sits in the temple of God to proclaim that he is God. He's coming to defy the Savior. But he's also coming to destroy the saints. Look at verse 7 of Revelation 13. It says, And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given, to, given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Wow. See, his mission is to rid the world of every person who has any belief in the one true God. He hates those that love God. We, we need to remember that. And during these 42 months of great tribulation, true believers will uh, face torture, terror, by any means available to the Antichrist. Now, let me just stop here for a minute because I know some of you have a question about that because here's something I believe is helpful. I've met people who say, you know, preacher, I really don't believe this stuff y'all tell us about the rapture of the church. I don't believe this stuff you tell us about tribulation. I just believe it's all a fairy tale. And if you're right, then I, I'm just going to wait and see. But, you know, because I'm going to take a wait and see approach. And if you're right, uh, you know, and, and the church really does get raptured and, and we're left here for the first three and a half years where it looks like everything's going to be all right and then in the middle of that he breaks the peace treaty and then he starts killing people who, who do not uh, worship him and those who still want to uh, worship God. He, I'm just going to wait till then and, and, and if you're right, I'll just let him kill me then. 
Now, now I want you to hear me. A couple of problems with that. Number one is if you will not come to Christ in a culture where people will celebrate with you, I have a hard time believing you're going to come to him when they're about to kill you. A second thing is this. There's not one shred of biblical evidence from Scripture that supports the idea that someone who has heard the gospel on this side of the rapture will have any opportunity at salvation on the other side. Now, will people come to Christ? It's apparent that people will be martyred for their stand for Christ during that time. But it will be many people, I believe, that are yet to hear the gospel who will hear the gospel preached by the 144,000 witnesses during the time of great tribulation who will be sealed against any danger upon them. I believe it's a dangerous thing for you to watch this broadcast today and say, you know, I don't believe that preacher. I'm just going to wait and see if what he says is true. I mean, I want to tell you the thing that ought to stir our heart and why my heart is so burdened from studying this text this week and why I'm burdened standing before you today is this. I'm burdened because there are people dying without Jesus all around us. There are people right here in the Bible Belt, in the buckle of the Bible Belt, in God bless sweet home Alabama, who don't know Jesus. And should God take the church out today, they'd be left behind. It ought to stir our heart to tell somebody about Jesus because if they don't, they'll spend eternity separated from him forever. God help us. He's coming to destroy the saints, but he's also coming to dominate society. You know what he'll do? He'll use intimidation and flattery to control the world. Whether he gets you by persecution or by reward, his goal is to eventually control the entire world. But he's also coming to delude sinners. Now listen. The closer we come to the end of time, we will see more and more demonism, more and more occultism, more and more witchcraft, more and more rebellion against authority. You see, the Antichrist is what has been referred to as the Christ of the cults. And remember this about the devil. If you ever forget that, don't forget this about the devil. He does not want casualties. He wants converts. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to serve him. If you refuse and need to be a casualty to get out of his way, then so be it. But his goal is to convert you to his demonic ways. He's having a lot of success already in the world. I can only imagine... I've heard people say the world will be a better place. If it wasn't for you Christians, the world would be a better place. Hear me and hear me very clearly from 2 Thessalonians. You can read it. When the Christians are enraptured to meet Jesus in the air, then the work of the Holy Spirit through the church will cease. And there will be no praying Christians. No influence to restrain evil. If we think it's evil now, I can only imagine how evil will spread during the graves of great tribulation. He's coming to delude sinners. But I can talk to you about tragedy. I can even talk to you about tribulation. But I'm grateful that Daniel saw a vision of triumph, weren't you? I'm grateful that it didn't end right there. Marty, Glenn, Weston, Karen, Steve, and Tim, my 
one, two, three, four, seven people right here in the building, and all you gazillions, I know gazillions watching my internet today, right? Hey, hear me. I'm glad the story didn't end with the tragedy and the tribulation. It ends with something better. You'll notice, and we'll find this to be true in the verses 9, 10, 13, 14, 18, 22, and 26, and 27. So as bad as all this stuff we've talked about and shared sounds so far, I'm glad the Holy Spirit led Daniel to write about something else he saw. And notice with me, if you will, back there in verse 9 of Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> notice what the Bible says. It says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. His hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame and its wheels a burning fire. Fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times, uh, ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Okay, what do we see? The first vision we get of Triumph is he sees a vision of the sovereign God. In verse 9, Daniel gets a glimpse of the Ancient of Days. <laughs> oh, thank God for the Ancient of Days. This is nothing more than a picture of God the Father in his, on his eternal and universal throne. As Ancient of Days, I want you to know this, this don't mean he's outdated. Uh, it doesn't mean any of that at all, but it refers to the fact that he is an ageless and eternal God. Notice what happened there as we read in verses 9 and 10 how he was described. And let's just walk through a little bit of that, okay? Being that we're by internet, nobody's in a big hurry. You got your pajamas, get you another cup of coffee and dial in here, okay? The Bible says that his garment was white as snow. What, what does that tell us? Well, that speaks of his holiness, his purity, and his righteousness. The Bible says that his hair of his head was like pure wool. Speaks of his eternal nature, purity, and wisdom. He's always existed, and he is wise beyond all comparison. It talks about his throne was a fiery flame, which speaks of purifying and righteous judgment. Its wheels of burning fire tells us that there's no spatial limitations or restrictions of his judgment. He sees everything, and he's present everywhere. And then it said, a fiery stream issued out and came before him. This reinforces the two previous ideas, and it conveys the righteous fury and wrath of his judgment. Listen to what Psalm 97.3 says. It says, a fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. And then it said, a thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Speaks of him being surrounded by countless scores of angels as he prepares to do the work of judgment. Hmm. We see a portrait of the son of sovereign God there's also a portrait of the son of God look at verse 13 he doesn't leave Jesus out either. listen he says so they answered 
and said before the king that Daniel, excuse me, wrong, wrong verse, verse 13, excuse me. <clears throat> he said, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Take just a minute and flash back to something in the Gospels. Jesus was before the man Sanhedrin in Mark chapter 14, verse 61 and verse 62. Here's what the Bible says. It says, again, the high priest asked him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Oh, we're just getting a foreshadow of what Jesus said would happen in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 and following when he comes to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. But notice, if you will, that part of verse 10 that says the court was seated and the books were opened. Well, this verse gives us a glimpse of the future judgment that is coming to all those who reject the sovereign God and reject the Son of God. The Bible tells us about two judgments. The first judgment we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. The Bible says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This letter is written to the church, the Apostle Paul, speaking to born-again believers, and he is saying to you, There will be a judgment for you, the judgment seat of Christ, where the redeemed of God will stand before the Lord. You see, this judgment is not one that will... Well, that will decide or determine our salvation that has been settled, but it will focus on what we have done in service for God since we became a believer. This judgment takes place right after the rapture of the church when we're with the Lord, and only the redeemed will be there. But there's a second judgment, and that's the great white throne judgment. Here's what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. John the Revelator said, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And, oh, here's that, here's that phrase. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged according, every, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, this is why my heart is so burdened. It's because someday these books are going to be open. You see, this judgment, the great white throne judgment, good news for you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, been born again, bought with the blood, repented of your sins, trusted him as your only Lord and Savior. Good news, you won't be there. The bad news is somebody will. 
That somebody may be somebody you really love. So the books were open. What books? You ever thought about that? Well, they're listed for you on the outline. First book is the book of works. What is the book of works? It's the book that records every thought, every word, every deed, every sinful and evil thought, action, or activity or response that you have ever made in your life. Matthew 12, 36 says this, but I say to you, what Jesus said, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You say, well, wait a minute, preacher. What about my good thoughts? What about my good actions? What about my good words? What about my good deeds? What about all the good stuff that I've done? I've been a good person. I've treated people right. I've responded right. I've behaved right. I've really kept a clean moral life. Will that not be recorded too? Oh, I'm sure. But can I say this to you? Even if it were that your good outweighs your bad, even if it were that your good was 99% of the scale and your bad was 1%, I want you to know even at your very best, you will never be good enough to earn eternal salvation. Adrian Rogers used to say, I wouldn't trust the best 15 minutes of my life to get me into heaven. It's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus did at Calvary. The book of works. Then there's another book. The Bible. Oh, you don't think that this book will be what we'll be judged by? Oh, I do. John 12, 48 says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him at the word which I have spoken will judge him in the last day. You see, the Bible will be used to remind you some things. If you're watching today and you've never trusted Jesus and you know that based on the word of God, unless you come to Christ, you're going to be at this judgment. The book of works is already stacked against you. There's no hope. And then the Bible is open. What is tell you what it's used to do it's used to remind you of every sermon every song every testimony that you have ever heard that glorified God will be brought back to remind you of every failed opportunity you had to come to Christ wow and then there's the book of life one that's talked about exclusively in Revelation 20. Here's what the Bible says about the book of life. It says this. It says that anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake fire. Now, I know you think, preacher, do you really believe that that's really going to happen? Yeah, I do. Now, Now, preacher, and I've heard this, do you really believe that a loving God You tell us that God loves us and that he is love, that his name literally is love. Why would 
God cast somebody into the lake of fire? Why would God send anybody into a crisis hell? Well, here's the truth. He won't. But if you reject him, you will sin yourself. You see, the absence of your name in the book of life is evidence of the lack of your salvation. Didn't Jesus say something about this in the Sermon on the Mount? I believe he did. Matthew chapter 7, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord to me shall enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Dear friend, hear me. That means if you had an emotional experience where you were not truly sorry for your sins, but you were sorry for the consequences of your sin, but not truly sorry for your sin, then you just had an emotional experience that does not translate into eternal salvation. You might have said, Lord, Lord, but did you really come by the way of the cross? He says, not everyone of them says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, because many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? done many wonders in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness some translations say you workers of iniquity the preacher I went to church. Preacher, I'm a member of a Baptist church. Preacher, I've seen all this kind of stuff. I've sung songs. I've preached sermons. I've taught lessons. I've done all this stuff. I've done, I've done, I've done. Never. It's not about what you've done. It's have you embraced what he's done. And have you come his way. And if you have, Here's what ought to really be stirring in our hearts. As we see a portrait of tragedy and a portrait of tribulation, as children of God, if you're a true blood-bought, born-again child of God, you can rejoice in the triumph that's coming. But what about those that still have no hope? That's what's really got You see, I believe the most important thing you can do in times like this is not get preoccupied with the Antichrist. Don't get all caught up in that. But you ought to get passionate about the authentic Christ. You ought to really fall deep in love with Jesus. I'm going to tell you how you do it. If you just dig yourself in this Word, And you let this word speak to you. You let this word feed you. You let this word be the very air that you breathe. Job said it. He said, Lord, I've esteemed the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. If you want to fall in love with Jesus, you've got to let this word be what guides your life. And then as you get passionate about the authentic Christ, you know what you'll do? (laughs) You'll tell somebody else what it says. And you'll want somebody to have what he gave you. And 
you'll want to know that people are going to heaven with you. I'll leave you with this. D.L. Moody. I've got a book in my office that is, I think best I know, is an autobiographical book Moody wrote about his life. It's an original print. only thing that's new about it is the spine part had to be replaced. And I had a sweet lady named Elizabeth gave that to me years ago. Elizabeth is my friend. I trust she's still my friend today. Her husband's Jerry. And I was privileged to be their pastor. She came one day and she had this book, Life Work, The Life of Dwight L. Moody. And she said, My daddy was a preacher. He loved me. And I want you to know, I felt pretty unworthy to even accept that but I knew that she would have never brought that gift to me if she didn't really want me to know it. And each time I look at it on my shelf, I think about Elizabeth and Jerry and the kindness they showed to me. She cried and said, my daddy was a preacher. And he preached the book that I want you to know. Here's what Moody said. Moody was quite the evangelist. Had a passion for winning souls. He said this. He said, God spoke to him one night. He said, Moody, you're in a lifeboat. I want you to take everybody you can to heaven with you. Get them in the boat. You know how Moody knew he'd get them in the boat? Through the gospel. Yeah, we're living in some tough days. We're living in some very important days. But everything we see unfolding around us ought to motivate us to share the gospel. So as we study chapter 8 through 12, yes, there's quite a bit of prophetic material. But the prophecy ought to not drive us to get caught up in the prophecy. The prophecy ought to drive us to share the gospel. Because time is drawing nigh. Friends, I want you to know as you're watching today if God has spoken to your heart and you say Brent I'm not sure I belong to Jesus or I know I don't belong to Jesus would you do send us an instant message there send us an email through our website call our office and leave a, a, a voicemail do something let me call you let me talk to you let me uh, share with you how you can know because the Bible is clear 1 John chapter 5 you can know it's not a hope so, guess so, or wish so. It's no so. You can't know. And I'll tell you something else it'd be good for us to do. You know, in our war room back here on the, in our prayer room, we've got prayer requests, answered prayers. And we've got a cross in our hallway that we'd started this year with our Who's Your One, one person you're praying for to come to Christ this year. We're taking those cards, and this week we'll take them and put them on the walls in our prayer room so more people can pray. Maybe there's somebody you know that needs to be saved and you just want to send us a message say, hey, please put my lost friend. You don't have to tell us their last name. You can just tell us their first name. God knows who they are. You want us to put the name of your lost friend, your lost family member, somebody you care about. Send us something. Email us. Instant message. Whatever. We'll put them up. 
But what I want to encourage you to do is, is first make sure you're right and then go help somebody else get right. So if you're watching today and you need anything from the Lord, I know these are perilous times. I know these are trying times. I know these are times that keep you up at night, bring a lot of anxiety into your life. I deal with it myself. I am no different than you. But I'll tell you what helps me is to know that this book can be trusted. One of the main things we hear people talking about a lot going on around us is I don't know who to trust. I don't know who's telling the truth. I don't know which what the news is saying. I don't know what the paper's saying. I don't know what my friends say. I hear this one day and this the next day. I don't know what to believe. Trust me, I'm living through that too just like you. But I tell you what you can trust. He is coming again. And you must be ready. Just know how much we love you. Know that there's not a thing you can do about it. Know that we're grateful for you. We're going to keep you be using these broadcasts. Lord willing, our plans are to meet in person next week. We'll make a formal announcement about that tomorrow evening once we've kind of gathered everything tomorrow. So be paying close attention to that. But until then, just know you're loved. There's nothing you can do about it. Marty, why don't you come and sing, sing for us, sing us out. What you got for us? battlefield let's do that marty and winston are going to come up and sing us out god bless you for watching today stay here with them thank you for your comments thank you for letting us know you're there uh we're just grateful for you hey this little chorus i'm on the battlefield for my lord let's make that be true this week y'all sing when you're ready brother